Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 48. I'm Joshua Klein. And I'm Mike Uptograph. And issue 13 has been circulating. If you're a subscriber and you haven't seen it yet, uh, something has gone wrong. <laughs> Something's gone amiss. Oh, uh, now And now Grace is getting emails. Yeah. So, oh, crap! So if you are a subscriber and haven't gotten your copy of 13 yet, uh, you should reach out to Grace at info at mortisandtenonmag.com. And she will get that fixed for you because uh, somebody has dropped the ball somewhere along the lines. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's been great to have this issue out and to hear uh, some feedback. Uh, we've heard about violin makers, uh, yeah. old school violin makers, and uh, and uh, what else? Oh, scrapers. Some commentary. scraper comments. Yeah. yeah. So um, everyone has some thoughts on scrapers, or they know of some other old school way of putting a. Um, you know, burnishing or, you know, turning a burr on a scraper. And so that is, uh, that's been great to, uh, to hear. A lot of people have thoughts and comments on that. Um, and so we are now moving on and starting work on issue 14. Yeah, it's, I'm actually, I have my, uh, yesterday, I spent much of yesterday uh, sketching out my uh, outline for my article and doing some research and mulling things over. So uh, it's weird because I think our production... By the time the new issue comes out, we're like, you know, mentally moving to we're the next with one. It. <laughs> so it's so yeah. weird to like, yeah, release it and people get to see it, and we're already like on the next step. Yeah, it feels um, it feels old to us because we focus so intensely on it for so long, and then when people get it for the first time, we're like, oh yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah, what was, was in that one again? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's it's fun, and so we're moving on to fourteen, which. Uh, promises to be a unique collection. There are some things in there that I bet as a hand tool woodworker, you've never seen before. Uh, yeah. I'm going to say that and say no more. I think that's a it. fair assessment. Um, uh, but we also have been uh, catching up on, we've been so busy on the house project that uh, we've kind of had this list of things we wanted to offer this year, uh, you know, a new t-shirt and posters and so, you know, stuff like that that we just, uh, we've been working to catch up on. Um, and so we have a new t-shirt that's going to be coming soon. The design is all set, but we actually have a, a sample coming our way. And once we get that sample and approve that sample, uh, we will have the new shirt in our store. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's coming up soon. Um, we've, I post a little snippet of that in the daily dispatch, uh, for people to see it. So it's, it's an old picture of Joseph with a basket of tools and it's, it's a really cool, uh, yeah. design. So, That'll be coming up soon. Also, we have a poster which will be coming up soon. I just got the shipping confirmation, the you know estimated shipping confirmation. Uh, so we have things in the works. Yeah. So uh, stay tuned to uh, the blog and the dispatch. Those things, those products, when they're up and available, uh, you'll see a notice there, so you can jump in and check them out in the store. Um, so. As Joshua mentioned, we have been really busy with the house project, oh, yeah. the house by hand project. Uh, as soon as uh, issue 13 went to the printer, basically we we threw our laptops onto the floor <coughs> and ran outside and grabbed, you know, axes and saws. <laughs> basically, that, that might be a slight exaggeration. Um, but yeah, we, we switched very quickly, uh, switched hats over to uh, the timber frame project because... Uh, winter is coming, mm -hmm. and we wanted to get something standing 
over there on the foundation. Yeah, definitely. Before I mean, winter. Yeah, we, it is not ideal to be raising a timber frame with snow on the ground, <laughs> obviously. Um, but also we just wanted to be able to, we had so been doing so much work on the L for the house and uh, restoring the frame of that. And we thought we got to get that up. We got to get that sheathed. Um, and we, you know, just assembled the, uh, the sill system for the house proper and got that in place. So we've been scrambling to get stuff ready before snowfall comes. Right. We had some pretty hard frosts a little while ago, a yeah. few weeks ago, and, and that got me nervous. Yeah. And now it's not as bad anymore, but um, it is coming. Winter is coming. And so we've been scrambling to get uh, all this stuff ready. Yeah. So um, basically, uh, the Daily Dispatch was envisioned as a way to share um, not only the, the daily goings-on behind the scenes here and antique stuff, but also as a really good way of sharing the... Um, the house project, the house by hand yeah. project. Uh, when we're out there on the job site, we don't have time necessarily to write a detailed blog post, but we have time to record a video and give commentary or take a series of photos, yeah, like tw- a collage 20 of pictures, the day. Or, yeah, from, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's really a great way of um, getting this information out there. It's very immediate. It's very, you know, as we say, raw, you know, not heavily edited or edited at all. It's just... <laughs> You know, sometimes we're, we're up on a roof and we take a video of that or we're uh, just sharing the job site. And that is um, something that's really valuable about the Daily Dispatch. So uh, you can check that out on our website or um, mtdailydispatch.com. And um, it's, you know, five bucks a month and you get all that background stuff. And also you get uh, sneak peeks and things uh, before uh, anyone else, really. So. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to talk about this project today. Yeah, we, we did one podcast episode before we even got seriously into it, mm-hmm. describing the project about, you know, the 1810 house project and, uh, what, you know, the, the old house that, uh, um, my wife and I are restoring. So we, we have an episode, you can jump back and listen to that sort of the story of how we sourced the house and, and that whole idea. Um, but now we're deep into it we've been restoring it and we raised part of it we raised the l which was a barn originally um and so we thought it'd be a a fitting time to basically uh update you know talk about so what did we discover what have we done to this point because Mm -hmm. uh there's been a lot a lot of head scratching it's it's one thing to take a building down right that (laughs) is easy to do it's another to restore (laughs) it put it back together make a lot of decisions about you know future use and then resurrect it stand it back up and uh get it get it closed in so there's a lot to to uh think about when you're taking on such a project and there's a lot to talk about here in in this episode yeah so um in terms of sort of a broad view of this this house project so we had here a few years ago a big timber frame project where 35 some odd carpenters came from around the world and hewed they hewed and raised a frame and that was um, the inspiration behind Another Work is Possible, the book and the, the film, um, which won several awards here for filmmaking, which is great. Great to be able to say that and put that little, like a sticker on the front of it. Um, but uh, so that was a, a big group of people coming over a short period of time to get a tremendous amount of, of work done. And this project is slightly different. Well, it's actually the exact opposite. It's very different. It's a very small number of people over right. an extended period of time. Right. Getting, 
you know, doing this work by hand. And uh, a big part of that is a lot of the, uh, the heavy lifting was done 200 years ago, mm-hmm. right? The, the felling and the hewing. Um, of course, we're doing some repairs and stuff, so there's, there's that element of it. But uh, we're taking all that labor from hundreds of years ago and we're uh, putting it back into use. We're, we're like re-raising, we're restoring it. So um, part of the process is um, we, we were starting with, uh, with the raisings, right? So we, we pull out the parts, we assess them, right? We look them over, we say, okay, this needs a repair, this needs a repair, this needs a repair. For the barn, for the L, we're doing some modifications because it was too long and also one end of it was pretty rotten mm-hmm. as it stood. So we, we were down a few timbers and we said, let's eliminate one bent. Basically, we're mm-hmm. making it shorter by something like what, eight feet? Yep. So we shortened it by eight feet and we have to... Um, we have to test out all of our joinery, all of our repairs and everything by mm-hmm. doing test raisings before we do the big raising. Yeah, well, and part of it is too, because so this is a scribed frame. Yeah. So it's hand-hewn timbers and they've twisted over the years and, um, and even- Sagged on its foundation. Yeah, exactly. So things are a little bit wonky. And so if you're looking to restore an old building like this, it is helpful to buy one that's a little bit, like if it's a barn, a little bit too long, and then you mm-hmm. can shorten it, and then you have a few extra timbers to work on. Right. So usually what you'll find is there's a certain percentage of these timbers, they're compromised, they need to be repaired, they need to, you know, whatever. You need scarfs to do over, you know, time. So it, it is helpful if you have a, a building that's a little bit too big, and you can just shorten it if the design accommodates for that. So that's what we did. Um, and that eliminated the need to completely replace certain posts. Like, mm-hmm. for example, there was one post that had been completely sawn away yeah. because they wanted a big open barn door, you know, on the side right. of it. And so they just, someone later cut it out. So we didn't have to go, oh no, now we have to find another replacement post. We just said, well, that's one post we don't have access to. Yeah. So what that meant is that we are kind of, um, this was a scribed frame. So every uh, tenon mated its mortise just yeah. so and it's it's labeled they're that not way. really interchangeable not interchangeable so we wanted to change them <laughs> to yeah. move them over and to adjust things and so everything had to be custom fit again mm-hmm. that wasn't going into its you know original mating member and so the way we did that is by scribing rescribing the frame right um and actually we shortened all the posts by a foot as well um, because of it has to join up to the house so we're starting with looking at assessing the timber, saying what good material do we have? And then, you know, like, for example, we eliminated two of the rafters because mm-hmm. of this. And we said, which are the two twistiest rafters? Yes, which two? Because they're all crazy twisted. Yeah. Um, and then we can bring them out and we, we're able to do all the scribing of the joinery to fit in just so. So this piece fits now perfectly into that. We want tight shoulders all over the place. Yeah, and so um, <clears throat> you know when when it all comes together, we did a um, test raising of the different sections as we did the repairs. But then we'll talk about um, raising a little bit later on. Uh, on raising day, when that all comes together, uh, there's still some head scratching. There's still <laughs> some some things that don't quite always for line some up. people, not for, for us. Right, right, right. Well, yes, I was talking <laughs> theoretically theoretically that could be the case um 
Yeah, but we'll we'll get into that a little bit. So there were a lot of repairs uh, to do. Actually, uh, from what we've heard, these two frames are kind of remarkably in good condition. Yeah, definitely. Um, a few areas, a few... Uh, like in the house, there's this one back corner that was rotted. So that post and the end of the tie beam and the plate, the end of the plate, that last plate joining up in there, those were rotten. The end of that rafter. So it was like a, a corner was gone, yeah. which compromised yeah, several. the whole corner of the house. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's another tie beam that had some ant infestation and they ate out the side of the timber. Yeah. Um, but that's the majority of it. Yeah, you know, there are little things here and there. In in the barn, I remember when we were taking it down, we were pulling off sheathing on the one. Um, There's a, a gable end that had a newer addition, like say a very early 20th century workshop addition on it. And we're pulling off sheathing and this timber, which looked completely intact, this, this long tie that went from the front of the barn to the back, looked completely intact from every visible angle until we started pulling sheathing off. And I was like, oh, there's a little rot pocket there. Oh, okay. That's like a huge rot pocket. Like the, the it was a timber skin full of powder, right? Uh, and so we, we soon realized, oh my goodness. So that is not going to be usable. Um, but it's stuff like that, you know, little surprises that you find when you're <laughs> little surprises, little surprises <laughs> when you're taking down these buildings. Uh, but fortunately, in our case, because we're shortening the barn, that was not a problem. That actually helped inspire the shortening of the barn. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but so there are there are lots of considerations when you do structural repairs on 200 year old timbers, and obviously you want that repair to be as sound as possible, right? That's So let's say your first consideration is we want this place to be able to, uh, we want this timber to stand and be solid and do its job for another 200 years, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to make any compromises in the strength of the house. So uh, that's the first thing to consider. Well, and I think also it just makes me think about some people saying, so wait, you took these buildings down, you took disassembled everything possible, denailed all the boards, and then drove it half an hour away, and you're putting it all back up. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just repair them in place? That kind of question. Right, you know, why right, don't right. you, why would you take a whole building and disassemble and move it? And I think there are multiple answers to that. One of which is I love the property I live on. Right. <laughs> I love my Yeah, you my didn't property. want to move to like just outside of town. Right. But, but the other thing is, you know, so why don't I go looking for a place that has good property in the house and a house that I like? But I think the thing about it that you, you kind of don't factor in is when you say, well, I'll just buy an old house and just restore it in place mm-hmm. as if that's easy. Right. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> and, repairing that timber that was rotten exactly. through in place. Yeah. So you'd have to take all the plaster off that wall. You'd have to take the exterior sheeting off. You have to disassemble that joint. You have to scarf in it would be a huge amount of work to just do it in place um it actually is in in many instances and also like so the rot pocket you know Mm -hmm. the end of that that uh, timber that was that looked good from the outside but then it's all hollow inside those kinds of things you're not going to know about unless you have all the timbers out right and you're assessing them and you're going to repair the joinery and you say oh wow okay so this is this one and this is this one so when we have done these repairs now and we have them standing, I know, 
I have no concern about. I wonder if there's, you know, some hidden rot I can't find somewhere that's going to collapse. Right. There's no question about that. We've gone through every square inch of every single timber and assessed it and said, what needs to happen? So it is a, a really uh, valuable, uh, effective way to make a 200-year-old building become a 400-year-old building. If you actually just take it apart and, and resurrect it, as opposed to just patch it along for another little right. while, there's going to be stuff you're missing. Right. And that's uh, kind of the beautiful thing about timber frames is that that is entirely feasible yeah. uh, to do. You can just knock them apart, put them back together. So as we were looking at these repairs and thinking about, okay, what do we do? How do we, how are they going to be structurally sound? Um, but it's not just about, well, what's practical, what's going to be strong. There are other considerations at play. Right. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we were thinking about is, you know, trying to preserve as much original material as possible. And, uh, Nevin, who was working with us, he was telling us that uh, these kind of repairs... So we were talking about different ways to repair, say, the the rotten end of something. And he was talking about different scarf joints. And I said, well, is there any way we can... It's it's just the very, very end that's rotten. Are there mm-hmm. ways we can you know, patch in certain things and not just lop off the last five feet right. <laughs> or whatever? Yeah. Um, and so we were talking about that and so we ended up coming up with a repair that's very structurally sound but very picky it's not just lopping Lop it, it off, off and, and scarf a new one scarf yeah, yeah exactly and so nevin was talking about how um how he was told that these were described as heroic repairs right they're super uh, picky and elaborate and it basically is virtually invisible once the mm-hmm. the frame is assembled um and so it's a kind of a crazy way to go right but in the end, you end up, someone standing inside the building would not know that that joint is repaired at all. Right. But there was a ton of time and careful uh, repair that was done to, to make that structurally sound. Right. Because, so part of the consideration with this project is the visibility of the timbers. So in the house itself, uh, in the front half of the house, there are two parlors. There's a federal parlor and a Greek revival parlor. And all the trim and everything was preserved uh, when the house came down. So all of that is sitting upstairs in the smithy right now, all labeled and wrapped up and ready to ready for restoration. But when the house gets put back together, all those pieces will go in and, um, and it'll get lath and plaster on the walls and the timber frame will be hidden, mm-hmm. right? So repairs in there would... Uh, different things would be considered for repairs of those timbers versus repairs of the timbers on the back of the house and in the L, which will all be visible. Yeah, exactly. So um, if we had, say, a structural issue with a timber in the front of the house, we might be more inclined to lop it off into a scarf rather than the back where you're going to see, you know, a hard line and then bright white pine on one Mm -hmm. side of an old patinated timber. So uh, those are also things to keep in mind as as we're looking at these repairs. Like, okay, so what part of this timber will be visible in the final structure? Mm-hmm. Uh, what will we see when we look at it? And uh, how can we make this look as um, as complete and as unfiddled with as possible? Yeah, and I think, so that really gets to, you know, why why are we doing this whole project as a whole? Why are we not just building new? Why would we... Um, you know, spend this time to to care about the surfaces. Um, and it gets at kind of the, the values that are driving the whole project. The project, you know, from the beginning of taking 
even just doing this at all, doing taking down an old house, all the way to the, the care to hide uh, the repairs we're doing. And so it, it gets at this, this question of um, age value and historic value, and then weighing that with use value. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about, you know, valuing and appreciating something from the past and then saying, and now I want to use it in the present. Mm-hmm. So we have this, this sort of this area of kind of conflicting values. Maybe we're saying, well, how do you use something for now, but that has this value from the past? And there's a book that's been really helpful to me uh, by John Watson. He is a, a pipe organ conservator uh, at Williamsburg. And he's written a book called Artifacts in Use, The Paradox of Restoration and the Conservation of Organs. And Watson's talking about in this book how when you're looking at artifacts, conservators want to conserve and preserve as much original as possible, right? But when part of the meaning and the interpretation, the understanding of the artifact is its use, as in a pipe organ, mm-hmm. you know, what value is a silent pipe organ right. that can't be played? Um, there is some value there, evidence of tool marks and right. some documentary stuff that goes with it. But if you can't hear it, the organ's dead. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't... It's, it's not it's, fulfilling its purpose. It's a silenced artifact, yeah. right? Not every artifact has that uh, function. Um, and there is, so if you have like a an ancient vase, it doesn't have to hold water so you can put flowers in it. We got other vases. It's right. not a big deal. Yeah. But um, for something like an like an organ where the, the value of it is is, um, is its functionality, then he says, okay, now we have a problem. We want to preserve the past, but we also need to get in there and restore some stuff so we can get it functional again. And so this whole book has been very helpful for me thinking about furniture conservation and now thinking about this house uh, conservation or restoration. And so he's talking about, you know, this age value. He talks about different values that, that we have for this these objects, these artifacts, and they these values drive why we're uh, wanting to treat or care for or preserve something for ourselves or for future generations. And so he talks about, um, he, he basically is picking up on a lot of different um, people from the past and what they've talked about, Ruskin and Regal and these other other people. But he talks about age value and there, you know, probably, I don't know, more than a dozen, maybe 20 different values that people espouse for, you know, why they want to preserve or restore something. But just to focus on a few that are immediately relevant to this, he talks about age value. And age value is something that, you know, it's it's when we appreciate the signs of age. When we we say, I really love that. It looks so old. And we say, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate and I value that, right? That's kind of a kind of a neutral, just sort of an aesthetic judgment. But that's related to historic value. Um, they're connected often. Because why would you care about something looking old if it didn't have some right historical right. anything at all right even if you don't know the name of the person who made it um you know some specific uh famous person from the past there still is some historic value to that that we know people made this in a speci- in a you know given time period and this is the kind of thing they were doing and we can from their tool marks and from what they were building kind of you know take a material culture approach and study them 
through yeah. their artifacts. You, you have a story tied to it. Yeah. <clears throat> so when we think about age value and historic value, we that is a big part of why I wanted to um, to restore an old house is because I appreciate those things. I appreciate uh, the workmanship from the past, and I want that to be preserved and, and carried forward and celebrated into the future. But I want to use the thing, too. Mm-hmm. I want to live in it. Right. And there's an interesting uh, tension within conservation that some, many of these artifacts, especially the smaller artifacts, their their meaning is wrapped up with their use. Mm-hmm. And if it's not going to be one like the, the five rarest examples that are going to be on display at the Met. Right. Then if they're not usable what's going to happen is they're going to end up in landfills, a lot of these things. And that is the case with a lot of barns and houses. They're just getting torn down. Tools, People say, yeah. tools. Yeah, they say, oh, it's, you know, it's the old barn. Yeah, I need it. I'll just, it's so much cheaper just to build a new barn. Yeah. Let's just bulldoze that and make a new one. I got a bunch of two by eights we can build, you know, and then it's gone forever. Right. And so um, there's this tension that if something isn't made usable, Often, that's you know, the, that's doom for the artifact. It's going to go to back to soil. Yeah, <laughs> going to go back to dirt. Yeah, and so there's that is this tension, and that's why uh, Watson describes the, the paradox of restoration. That um, if we think about conservation, these words have been throwing around: conservation, restoration, preservation. Um, if we think of, I think the best way to think of it is conservation is the umbrella category. We're trying to conserve this thing. Right. And within that discipline, within that um, aim, there are two distinct activities. There's preservation, keeping what is, mm-hmm. and there's restoration, right. making remedial repairs. Yeah. Right? So there's preservation is more about um, controlling the external environment, you know, whether it's temperature, humidity, and making sure the roof is not leaking, right? All that kind of stuff. And then restoration is saying, well, we got to get in there and right. fix this thing. Yeah. This and part's broken. This is whatever. Yeah. Often you'll see uh, restorations that have happened that have been uh, destructive, yeah. right? A lot of times, like with antique cars, uh, you get a premium price if it's, sold as unrestored because that means somebody with big big ham fists didn't get in there and and wreck the original value of the vehicle other times restorations are you know maybe they're destructive but they're also kind of necessary in that time and place like with the house there is a restoration of sorts done um kind of putting a a a big ugly band-aid on a structural issue which actually saved the house exactly yep um so that was a really important thing to have happen in that time and place where they couldn't, I'm sure the family couldn't afford to carefully pick it apart and rehew a timber and all that. They were yep. just like, let's, let's get this thing shored up. And they did, uh, you know, it was a pretty violent job of a pretty uh, violent process, but it did save the house. Yeah. Right. Um, so you see those, we see those as we're going through these things um, with, with almost anything with antiques, uh, you see repairs all over the place. Mm-hmm. And some repairs are done better than other repairs, right? Mm-hmm. But all of them, hopefully, are, if it's a restoration or something like that, its aim is to 
allow that piece to continue in use. Yeah, right. Uh, Watson describes it as that every artifact has life cycles, you know, mm. so that basically there's a restoration campaign and it starts a new life. It's like a, you know, uh, cyclical, uh, you know, like a reincarnation kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's kind of the picture is that now it has a new life mm-hmm. and it carries on for a while. And then after and it needs 100 years or yeah. something, it needs some work. Um, and so I think this, this framework, um, this artifacts and use kind of framework that John Watson has has laid out has really helped me with the house project because for those of you who do value old houses and you want to restore an old house mm. you're you know immediately presented with hmm I got these old windows that are sticking and I got right. this and I want to insulate but it's an old house but if I want to insulate do I have to gut all the plaster and mm-hmm. all of a sudden all these questions come in come into uh, you know, what? what's the appropriate way to handle this? I actually remember, so I did this this class. I taught a class um, to a, a group of woodworkers about furniture restoration. And uh, I, I asked them about, you know, what do you think about museums and the velvet ropes and the, the furniture that is behind the velvet rope that you can't touch it and they're right. showing you it's on display? What do you think about that? And it was really interesting because it was, I don't know, 50-50 split. Some people shot their hand right up and said, that is so important to protect our heritage and mm-hmm. to protect the uh, the value of these artifacts. And these are such rare examples and you know that kind of thing. And then some other people said, are you kidding me? That table was meant to be used. Mm. That's a table. If it's yeah. if you're not sitting down and eating at it, it's useless. Yeah. And we need to get that, you know, cut those velvet ropes and get those things back in people's houses. And it was so interesting to see this um, really strong contrast. And that's illustrating the tension within the the conservation discipline that you have values for preservation, you have values for restoration, but in reality they they have to come together because if you're going to clean anything you're right. restoring yeah right you're t- you're removing stuff from the artifact it might be dirt but we say well we don't want that dirt on here or yeah. um so every time you're even within a museum context there's a sense if some people don't like describing it this way but there's a sense in that a museum uses an artifact they use it as an educational tool, right. it's on display. Yeah. So they have to get it pretty enough, get it clear enough so that they can put it on the display and they're exposing it to light and yeah. traffic. It's degrading. And whatever. And it's, it's not a know. static environment. There. Sure, it's obviously um, as controlled as possible, mm-hmm. the temperature and humidity, but they're making a decision that rather than lock this in you know, some uh, climate controlled uh archive somewhere we're going to put it on display we're going to choose to use it yeah at because the benefit outweighs the the cost right. of the slow degradation yeah so that's just a small picture of you know when you're thinking about taking an old house and restoring it to live in it yeah uh it is interesting to me along these lines um you know, francois who uh francois Colum, who was one of the um or the founder of the um Charpentier Sans Frontier, the Carpenters Without Borders group who was here. Um, I was asking him about this old axe that I had bought, and he told me it was probably looking at it. He, you know, he could rattle off a list of facts about it just immediately. So he, um, 
was in the, um, I'm going to forget the official title, but some um, department within the French government for the preservation of uh, like skills and antiquities and so like uh, cultural preservation. And so he, to me, would be, a, I would think, a person who would be more uh, um, looking at the aims of preservation rather than, um, you know, utilization. Like mm-hmm. he, he would be, I th- would think, someone more inclined to saying, oh, that's valuable historically. You should preserve that. And what he told me about this axe was you should sharpen that and use it because you'll get you'll gain a lot of insight into the people who who made that axe and used it before. And that was surprising to me because I had been handling this thing like very carefully. I hadn't touched it. I hadn't done anything to it. Um, and his thought was, yeah, it's it's pretty old. It's in beautiful condition. It's really interesting. Uh, I haven't seen one exactly like that before. You should sharpen it and use it. Hmm. And that was striking to me, but uh, he was absolutely right in that, um, you know, I've learned a lot about the use of that ax and what it could have been used for that I wouldn't have known just, um, you know, hanging it on the wall and dusting it and uh, making sure not to touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's an interesting thing. And you, and you wonder, like, so how, where's the line? Is the line a fixed date on the timeline? Before this, we don't use these tools? Mm-hmm. Or is it uh, some other arbitrary measure? Or it, I mean, it's I, just different for every every object and building? Yeah, I think, so Watson, I remember I listened to a, a podcast years ago that John Watson was interviewed and he was talking about... Um, how I'm trying to remember. Basically, he was he was saying it's like like a quarterback, right? You have the star quarterback who throws touchdown after touchdown. This is the star quarterback, and of course, you want you're looking at use value. You're saying like, right. let's get this guy in the field as much as possible, right? right? Um, he said, but what happens uh, when when they get older and they got to move on? They can, they're not as useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their body's not able to do what they're uh, doing, what this call is, this vocation. Uh, what do they do then? They become a, court, uh, a coach. Right. right. They go from quarterback to you coach. You don't just give them new hips and new knees and say, get back out there. Yeah, right? right. And so he's using that as an analogy to talk about. There are some artifacts that have uh, seen some things. Mm-hmm. And they've they've uh, they embody they have some special uh, connection to knowledge and, and insight from the past, and so they're worthy teachers, and so we should let them be coaches. Mm. We should let them be preserved. And so even I think you know Watson was talking about there are some organs that are so rare and so particular and special and have so much evidence uh, in their in the surfaces left behind that um, that they really are best left not played. Right. Because we have other organs from that time period that we can play. Mm-hmm. And so it really, I think, gets down to the the buildings that should be, you know, or the, the artifacts that should be not touched at all are those five rare instances right. that we have nothing else like that. Yeah. But most other things need to be cleaned and displayed, mm-hmm. or can be at least, or some other things like, you know, old barns and... The vast, vast majority of antique furniture can be, you know, carefully, gently put back into use. Yeah. So, you know, I think he what Watson says is he describes this this overlap of um, age value and use value. He describes this 
um, as heritage value. That's mm. his own term. But he's just basically saying we have to recognize that there's a paradox in restoration. That restoration, the whole idea is we want to restore, regain. That we can't. It's, a, right. it's gone. The past is gone, right? But we want to get something back by changing something for the future. Mm-hmm. It's a paradox, right? But he's saying heritage value really gets at this. He says it's a it's a conflicted zone that combines respect for the artifact's historical aspects with a claim to use it for present purposes. And so that is what this house is. It's saying, I want to restore that and raise my kids in it because I really value the history connected to that house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's like uh, like ringing the Liberty Bell, right? Yeah. We, yeah. Should, yeah. we should patch that crack up. Maybe recast the whole thing. <laughs> uh, no, probably yeah, not. Yeah, probably not. Let's not do that. Uh, so yeah. So a lot of this process is valuing the beauty of age in this these two structures that we're combining into one mm-hmm. right and being super careful with those surfaces because of the the story they tell yeah right because we're uh we're, we've got this thing about tool marks i don't know if you've if you've heard <laughs> anything about that from us but we're we're kind of obsessed and very interested in tool marks for the the information that they contain and if you look at a hand-hewn timber that has had joinery laid out that's scribed and raised, uh, they are covered with information. Oh, yeah. It's and, amazing. And every time we see it, like, we'll be working on these timbers, restore them, raise them up, look at them from a different angle and go, whoa, did you see that? Like, yeah. there's handwriting right there. Or there's some new thing that we had not seen before. They're just rife with with information yeah it's amazing and so uh you can very quickly accidentally erase a whole lot of that by dragging a timber across another timber well and i I think that's one of the things when every time we've had someone um help us out on the site we give them a little you know kind (laughs) yeah uh, lecture beforehand saying okay you this is going to be hard to wrap your mind around but i know this dirty pile of twisted axe-hewn timbers yep. looks like just rough material, yep. but it's actually the finished surface. Right. This is like after you put the, the final coat of varnish on your right. trim. That's how you should That's think what of you're it. looking at. Yeah. So we're going to wash the dirt off, but that does mean it's this really counterintuitive thing because a lot of people, even if they're woodworkers, even if they're carpenters, they see these big heavy timbers and their first instinct is to pick it up and just drag it, pull it, flip mm-hmm. it, drop it. You know, they're like, oh, big heavy. I yeah. don't know what happens there, but something yeah, it's related way, to testosterone. The way you treat a stack of dimensional lumber, <laughs> you know, when you're digging in to start framing up a wall. Right? Yeah. You knock them over, you drag them out, you slap them together, you you shoot them, shoot them together and you stand it up. Yeah. But and, this is totally different. Yeah. This is you've just put like as as I said, you put like the final coat of varnish on this and it's laying down. And so you gently you pick it, it up, yeah. flip it over, set it down. <clears throat> yeah. So we we have um you know come up with a bunch of different uh finicky kinds of processes for dealing with these things. You know, we we don't drag timbers across uh each other when we're when we're raising a building where we raise the rafters, we put them top side down as they ride up on the top of the plate so that we're not scratching the undersides. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just very conscious of, of those final surfaces and what's going on there. So 
Uh, different stuff like um, denailing, right? Yep. Timbers are full of full of nails. Yep. And, and some, like in this barn, there were lots of places where there were random pegs and things for hanging um, like tackle and, and plow parts on. Uh, some of those pegs survive, some don't. Um, but in order to remove the old rusty nails, because those are not ideal, especially like later round nails and wire nails, mm -hmm. um, we found that, uh, well, obviously you can't just pry them out with a pry bar because you'll dent the surface. So you need a, a shim or a spacer or a piece of sacrificial softwood to use in there. And other times we found that the best way of dealing with it is to just like nip it off right at the surface mm -hmm. and to drive it slightly below. And mm -hmm. that is less damaging than trying to rip it out. Because oftentimes if you rip a nail out, you're ripping out more than just the nail. Yeah. You get blowout. And this is a little aside, uh, but some people have talked about how um, the benefit of cut nails or hand wrought nails is that they hold so well. Right. And wire nails don't hold worth anything, mm -hmm. which is exactly opposite. Of it's what exactly the truth is. wrong. Yeah. Um, anyone who's restored an old house and has, has seen uh, hand wrought nails and cut nails and wire nails. Mm -hmm. You know that's not true because yeah. the wire nails will not come out for they hold anything. Way better. They're insane. <clears throat> when, yeah. So I think a lot of it has to do with the rust. But um, a wire nail is pushing the fibers aside and wedging itself between, mm -hmm. and the blunt end of uh, you know a cut nail is really punching material away. So it's right. actually kind of almost boring a hole. Right. Um, but the other thing is that they're tapered shafts. Right. And so as soon as the the tapered shaft of a rot or a cut nail as soon as that nail loosens a little bit, just a little, all of a sudden it just, just going to fly right out. It's yeah, fly if you out. can picture the cross section is a long, thin triangle, and so if you have that in a long, thin triangular, uh, call it a mortise or a hole for your nail, as soon as you relieve it slightly, uh, the whole thing is the just whole thing is loose. Yeah, and a wire nail is not like that. A wire nail maintains that pressure until it's entirely out. Yeah, and so we have this is relevant to prying nails the way you approach that is you got to be really careful. A lot of uh, cut or rot nails, uh, if they're really stuck, they will just break. Yeah, because they're just, softer. They'll break right yeah. off. Um, so you can, if you can pull them out because they're not too rusted and it's great, um, they'll just pop right out. If they're wire nails, what mm -hmm. gauge wire nails? Yeah, <laughs> you know, what are you like, dealing with? It, it can get really messy. And so as some of the bigger wire nails, as we're pulling them, the smaller ones are fine. They come out pretty easy. But even some of the bigger nails, you got to be careful even with the block. Of course, you don't want to yeah. dent the timber. That's a given. But even the nail coming out can, can break out grain yeah, blow and stuff. Out. There's got to be a name for that. That's not spelch. What is that? Like the, the name of the uh, the wood ripped out by the removal of a nail. There's got to be a good German word for that. <laughs> There's a German it's word. It's probably like six syllables or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in that... Um, the barn that we um, took down, the new addition was framed with sawn dimensional lumber, which was, some of it was very nearly timbers, right? They were big, big yeah, real sawn big. Um, lumber. And then it was all nailed together with like like 20 penny or more yeah, like, I don't even know. Uh, wire nails that were these massive round spikes, which were pretty much impossible yep. to get apart. We had to cut them. Yeah, uh, we had to cut that building off of the frame. Uh, we yeah. could not pull the nails out. So, um, yeah, wire nails were. Uh, I think they've they're 
uh, you know, saving on materials now as they make wire nails. Back then, they weren't looking to save materials. They were as stout as you can imagine. Big, <laughs> thick shafts on those. Um, so, yeah, in, in denailing, in moving timbers, in, um, in, in cleaning timbers, yeah. You oh, yeah. Got to be careful. Even in cleaning. I mean, so I um, say, so for this L we just did, it was a barn and it was full of raccoon poop and all the, you know, yeah. stuff that you'd all expect. All the different poops. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like every poop you can imagine <laughs> was in there. Yeah. So um, we even had a corner of the barn that was painted green. And we said, watch out for that because there was a toilet in that corner. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, the, the whoever the, the, the farmer was, uh, he built a little box above the floor and cut a hole into the floor. And this toilet just simply emptied below the floor. Yeah. There was no tank, no anything. I guess it was for emergency use or whatever, you yeah. know, because whatever. But uh, so he painted that corner of the barn, this nice shade of green. Uh, it was very festive. Yeah. Uh, Spring. This springy, kind of yeah, very ins minty. inspiring for whatever. <laughs> minty. Minty green, yeah. So we knew that the green timbers, you got to be really careful, careful handling. handling what the heck, right? Um, so we had to, you know, we had, we had to clean these things because these are going to be exposed timbers in my finished house. So we needed to clean them. But in consulting with other timber framers um, who've done restoration work, um, you don't want to just say, well, if you're going to do it, do it right. You know, right. do it as, you know, hardcore as possible. Right. Um, yeah, get it clean. Yeah, and so y you can use a pressure washer, but you got to be pretty careful. Yeah. You got to be super careful. Um, and so I was warned about that, that you can leave fuzzy surfaces or you can change the color, that beautiful old color. You can, like, blast it away right. with a pressure washer. And so you got to dial it way back or even better – um, we actually just used um, the regular, like a hose mm -hmm. from my pressure tank, and we just um, we just used a, a garden uh, nozzle and, right. and used that. And so even at that, if I were to put that garden nozzle all the way to a really tight stream and got, if I were to get really close within six inches of the timber, it would probably start damaging it. Yeah. Um, back when I worked on boats and we would haul, um, we had these... Uh, a good um, number of these old vintage, you know, some of them were over a hundred years old, uh, small wooden sailboats. And we'd haul them at the end of the season and wash the bottoms. And we had a pressure washing setup to do that. And we had a special nozzle that we'd use with wooden boats, which was basically uh, moving the pressure washer down to almost ineffective. But that was the only way that was safe for doing that because with the regular nozzle, you could you know, blast a hole between planks or, you know, start slaking off material that you don't want to remove. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in the case of these timbers, it's not just, um, you know, removing bottom paints or other stuff. We we're, we're seeing writing on these surfaces that we want to leave there. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't want to remove chips from the hewing marks, which is super easy to do. Some of these these flakes are a little bit loose. And if you get behind that with a pressure washer, it's going to go flying off. Mm -hmm. um, so we uh, were doing spraying with the, uh, the nozzle and we have a few sort of soft bristle brushes and we'll, we'll wet out the surface. We'll give it a scrub and we'll give it a rinse. We don't, we haven't even used soap. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that has, you know, we, we tested a few different methods and that's been what we, 
um, have found works the best. Yeah, I um, when I years ago when we were first putting the sheathing away for storage, before I put them away, I washed all the uh, the section of sheathing boards and stood them up and dried them. And at that time, I uh, put a little bit of bleach in the water. I had a bucket of water, and I was, you know, using bleach for that. And I felt like that would be a good idea. It was so little that it did not change the color. Mm. Um, but I was talking with a friend who was giving me some advice about um, how they clean the timbers. Um, they're the ones who did our, our wood shop. And he said that they don't use bleach or soap, but they just use a, a pressure washer gently. And so I think if you have the trade-off is, you know, you can use bleach water, but the problem is you have to use a lot of water in this whole process. So if you can have, you know, a, a good amount of pressure coming out of a hose, blasting all that poutina off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can get down to the patina. Yeah. Um, then that's really going to be the best way to clean it. Um, and so that's the approach that we took. And it took a little bit of time, but we basically were trying to be more careful. Um yeah. We were trying to be really gentle. It was not like, you know, lots of elbow grease. No, <laughs> actually, it's like trying to hold back and not, right. you know, scrape the surface. Yeah, because there's definitely a spectrum among um, timber frame restoration about how aggressive uh, people tend to be with with um, working with these timbers. Mm -hmm. You know, we've heard from people who say, oh, yeah, I just like wire wheel it or like a <laughs> walnut shell blast it and then put, put the... Um, Put the timber oil to it and it's good to go or joshua you you are telling me a story of someone that you know who uh, yeah i had this really sad story so i had a i had somebody invite me into his house he was really excited he has um he lives in one of the oldest houses in the, our area and he's like oh yeah and we just uh, restored the kitchen we just we pulled back the the drop ceiling the plaster on the ceiling to expose the timbers up above and we uh, restore our whole kitchen and we were really excited about it. And I just, uh, that's great. That's cool. I want to see mm -hmm. it. And he said, yeah, come on in. Let me show you. And we went in and I, I looked and all those timbers overhead were exposed, but they were completely belt sanded. All the surfaces mm. were gone. And um, there was probably some oil or poly or something mm -hmm. on there or something. And I just thought, oh, wow, what a bummer. You know, like that's... You can't undo that. There's yeah. no putting that back. And so uh, I just, I think there are a lot of different perspectives on uh, what people think is like the right or appropriate way to do it. And I, what I've found, you know, from the conservation side of things, um, what tends to happen is those who are kind of dipping their toes into this for the first time and are, haven't really uh, had a lot of experience in the field of uh, conservation of any particular thing, they tend to be pretty heavy handed. They tend uh -huh. to say, well, if I want to do it, I want to do it right. I want to do it thoroughly. Uh -huh. And so I want to get, you know, the coarsest grit and go as deep as possible and right. bleach as hard as possible and get really thorough. So I know it's good. Right. And it's sort of, um, making up for, uh, an awareness and an attunement to what actually needs to happen in that particular circumstance they just say well if i just go over the top on everything then i know i'm thoroughly covered uh -huh. right and so i think we, uh with this it would so much of the value of what this frame is is, is seen on the surface uh -huh. it's not only the surface i wouldn't want to veneer uh you know just take the veneers off and apply it to a 
uh, conventionally framed house. It's not just the veneer and lo- the look that I'm after, but it is it is an important um, uh, attestation to the way this house was actually truly made. Right. And I would not want to wipe that off, wipe it clean and make it look like it's actually new or make it look like someone didn't hew it. Right. I actually want all that evidence right there yeah. so we can admire it for the yeah. future. Yeah. So um, talking of for the future, uh, again, we have the L raised and we're looking ahead towards uh, a main winter and saying, okay, so this is up. How do we make sure this thing stays safe through the winter? Uh, one situation that we have a lot here is we'll have, uh, like a snowstorm that changes to an ice storm that changes to a rainstorm with strong winds and that sort of situation, uh, as you can picture, you know, a roof gets like ice damming and then there's water flowing in and, uh, you know, this timber frame that we've been so careful with the timbers, suddenly it's, uh, water running in all over everything and not a good situation. So we're looking at um, getting this thing buttoned up. Yep. Right. We have the roof sheathing on, um, which we have washed the same way as the timbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the roof sheathing is on, and the um, the uh, thirty pound felt tar mm. paper is on top of that. So yeah, and go with the thirty pound, for, not the fifteen. Thirty pounds good to go for a couple years. It's yeah. like. It's it's worth the price. Yeah, I had somebody at the hardware store tell me, you know, if you get the fifteen pound, it's like twice as much length. Yeah, it's like, uh huh. Yeah, I'll stick with the thirty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, probably for the walls, it's fine. But for the roof, having thirty pound felt is going to be really important for this main winter. We're going to mm-hmm. let this thing, you know, ride through. Um, so the the roof is covered now. Um, we have to sheathe the walls and tar paper the walls. Um, we also have the house sill, as I mentioned, it's assembled on the foundation, the granite block foundation. It's right there. So now um, we don't want to just fill that whole area with snow. So we're going to be covering that uh, to keep to shed the snow from it so that in spring, um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be pretty close to raising it as soon as the weather clears up. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to do. Um, you know, we'll have to deal with um, insulation and planning that and, you know, um, thinking through uh, joining up the house to the L and how we're going to be insulating everything. Basically, all the insulation, when you have an exposed timber frame, uh, usually you would think, well, there's the frame, so you'd insulate between the studs. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is typically how you do it. Right. But if you actually want all the studs inside your room, you want to see it, then you have to shift the insulation outside of that. Right. So we'll be insulating um, outside of that. We'll make a skin outside of the um, the frame and, and insulate that way. So yeah. there are all those different considerations that we're, we've talked about with the wood shop um, when we were doing that, but also specifically on the, the daily dispatch, we're talking about each step of this all the time and trying to um, you know, walk through why we're approaching it the way we're approaching it. Because this kind of, this way of constructing is completely backwards. Mm-hmm. You start with the finished surfaces, which are the frame. Yeah. And then you sheathe outside of that, and then you work your way out. Right. So it's it's really hard to wrap your head around making decisions about that kind of thing. And then, you know, again, if you have an exposed frame, okay, where's all my wiring running? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> So 
Uh, These are the things that keep me up at night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) We have everything is custom and funky and weird and uh, not interchangeable. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's fun. That's what makes it fun, I think. Yeah. And it's worth doing because uh, it takes a place that was essentially condemned that has historic value, that has beauty, and it makes it a home again mm-hmm. and and sets it up to last you know for until long after you're gone maybe after your kids raise their family in there and and their kids are grown up so yep, exactly um there's there's a lot of beauty in that in a world with a lot of uh mcmansions and uh cookie cutter houses uh, yeah. to preserve what was made and to really value the effort that went into that yeah i think there are a lot of people who view house house purchases as their commodities they're just saying i'm going to buy this commodity it's going to mm-hmm. be useful for me at a time and then i'm going to turn around and sell it and make money on it and you know so when i'm with this particular uh thing what we're trying to do is we're trying to invest deeply in this and say we appreciate this area and what it's doing um what it uh en- encapsulates about you know our area here and i want to you know, join into the the uh, history of this uh, object and raise my boys in it, and um, you know, see what it's like. See mm-hmm. what it's like to uh, interact with people of the past. Um, and you know, I I think I mentioned before that I'm scoping out. There's an area of my property I want to set up a little graveyard. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so. Uh, You're planning ahead. We're, we're pretty committed to this pretty project. Committed to this place. I'm not gonna be uh, be leaving this thing behind. So. Uh, the next place I'm going is that graveyard. Okay. Hopefully that's quite a ways off. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And again, if you have any comments or questions, I'll leave them below or comment over on our blog or in the Daily Dispatch. We'd love to hear with you, hear from you and interact with you uh, about what's going on. So we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>